The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Good Morning New York. I'm Vince Rocco, your host, and I'd like to welcome our listeners from around the world and the United States. Uh, It is a beautiful day here in New York City today, cold. I guess you can call it seasonal, but uh, it's still a little too chilly to be starting my day anyway. Let's get to some news items. A New York City developer will soon be in the Oval Office from his glass perch in Trump Tower at 5th Avenue and 56th Street to other buildings like Trump Soho on Spring Street and Trump World Tower near the United Nations. President-elect Donald Trump's signature is stamped across the city skyline. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was reportedly playing a significant role on his transition team, is also a major developer here with trendy projects uh, like the Puck Building on Lafayette Street, uh, Williamsburg's Austin Nichols House at 184 Kent Avenue, and Etsy's new headquarters in Dumbo's former Watchtower building. It remains to be seen, however, what having a New York City developer in positions of national power means for the city's local housing market. While many developers based here may be looking forward to big tax cuts promised to the nation's top earners, other ripple effects that could hamper a market that is already seeing a bit of a slowdown. Aside from that, three Trump residential buildings on the Upper West Side are changing their names after residents petitioned to distance themselves from the president-elect, according to the building's owner, Equity Residential. The Trump-placed buildings at 140, 160, and 180 Riverside Boulevard will drop the Trump branding and use just their address. The tenants feel that since Trump leases his name to buildings he does not own, part of their rent is being used to increase Trump's net worth. If you're young and you're single, your chances of winning one of uh, the hyper-competitive affordable housing lotteries run by the Department of Housing, Preservation, and Development go up, way up, up, reports DNA Info. They comb through two years of public data to break down the bleak stats, finding that the lion's share of these middle- to low-income apartments go to single folks between the ages of 25 and 34. Mm. In large part, that has to do with the available housing stock. DNA Info explains, between January 2013 and the end of 2015, uh, HPD ran 48 housing lotteries for a total of 1,470 units throughout the city. But according to that data, more than half of those av- uh, available units were on either one or two bedroom, a uh, one or studio, one bedroom or studio apartments. That's kind of interesting. Anyway, I have a special guest today. His name is Leonard Steinberg. We all know Leonard. He is the president of Compass, a fast-growing New York City uh, real estate firm, actually a U.S. firm these days. We'll get to that in a minute. He was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa, a child of immigrants. I love when I when I tell, <laughs> I tell people this. 
Previous to Compass, Steinberg was an executive vice president at Douglas Elliman, the largest residential real estate brokerage firm in New York, and he also worked for uh, Corcoran, another competing firm. He is widely considered to be a top Manhattan broker and has brokered over $3 billion in New York real estate. That is amazing. Before his career in real estate, Leonard owned a fashion company and was fashion designer at Christian Dior America. He later recorded an album of original piano compositions, but decided to give up professional music shortly after. Leonard has guested here before with us. I'm excited to talk to him again. Always welcome and good morning. Good morning. I don't think uh, I decided to leave the music industry. The music industry decided (laughs) that for me. They said, get out. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but what's always interesting to me whenever I refresh myself with your background is, uh, you know, the uh, fashion company yes and christian uh, dior america i used to love christian dior i it was think a that's licensee. kind of evident the way, way well dresses. he's very fashionable very very fashion <laughs> i feel i'm very unfashionable and i'm very boringly classic no boring but, you no no not no. At it's all. pretty dull no i don't think so Usually there's a brighter color involved that you couldn't even say that. (laughs) Thankfully. Well, he was cold this morning, so he wasn't going to get all whatever, but he still looks great. Anyway, let's get into it. So while it's unlikely that anyone will be especially heartened by the latest batch of Manhattan market reports reflecting sales in the third quarter of 2016, there may be some good news. Even though prices are still extraordinarily high, sales were down and inventory was up, suggesting that buyers are sending messages to sellers. Pam Liebman, the president of Corcoran, told Bloomberg News, we're experiencing a certain level of disconnect now between what buyers are willing to bid and what sellers are willing to sell for. Uh, Douglas Elliman's numbers guy, uh, Jonathan Miller, told Bloomberg, buyers are more wary. There isn't the same intensity of activity to burn through the new supply. So what does Leonard Steinberg say about this? And what does the market feel like today? Well, I think the market has gone through a tremendous shift, which started about a year ago. Everyone's talking about it very recently, but everyone always is very slow in picking up on the news. And actually, the real estate news often happens after the actual stuff has happened, which is really a bad thing about the real estate industry. We don't report as uh, currently as we should. So I think this change uh, or shift happened about a year ago. I think it was compounded with um, a strengthening dollar. I think it was compounded with um, Brexit. And most importantly, I think the entire market went into a bit of a wait and see mode until after the election. So the election has been a huge distraction. And I think Regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the outcome of the election, the most important thing for a lot of people has been to get an answer from the election and to say, well, look, we didn't know who the president would be and we didn't know whether it would be a peaceful transition. Both of those questions have been answered and for some that has moved them to make uh, decisions. And actually in the last two weeks, we've seen a lot of activity. So this definitely has fueled a wave of uh, buyers and renters to actually commit. Let me ask you something because, you know, we've been in this town long enough and we've seen many presidential elections come and go, uh, local elections come and go. Why do you think that that uh, buyers and sellers this past year, as you said, due to this last election, why do you think they took it so seriously? Why do you think the market slowed to almost a grinding halt? In fact, you know, as you said, it's a little activity may be picking up here and there. But this election seemed to have really gotten everybody, you know, standing still. I think the rhetoric of this election was at such acute levels and the uncertainty of its outcome, um, you know, having one candidate who doesn't have political experience or certainly wasn't experienced as the other, 
makes people nervous. And then you combine that with what happened in the United Kingdom. You combine that with a strengthening dollar. You combine that with geopolitical global turmoil. And you then add in a media that is obsessed with scandalous headlines that drive people into fear mode. And all of a sudden, everyone is fearful. So the only way to win at media today is to uh, sell a scandal or some salacious headline. Mm -hmm. Because no one reads content anymore. They only read, read headlines or look at pictures. Well, thanks to social media for that. I mean, you you, you buzz through your, your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed. And basically, you know, you look at the picture and you look at the the title of whatever it is and you get your news there. Sometimes you may read the story. I agree with you. Most people don't. You know, you're a well-respected real estate professional in New York City and you've been doing it for 20 plus years. Our president-elect is a major player in the New York real estate market as well. Do you think this will help the New York City market or not? The fact that he is a developer, he's been in this town forever, and he, he runs real estate for many, many years. Well, I think that remains to be seen. I think a lot of what happens in real estate happens on the local level. But I believe if you ease up um, banking regulation and free up more people to have access to uh, mortgages, that could be healthy. I don't see any harm in um, having people feel wealthier by reduced taxes. Certainly the very wealthy are going to do incredibly well by this administration. I believe the if we thought the wealthy were wealthy now, we will be absolutely awed by the kind of wealth that will be created for the wealthy over the next uh, few years. And then I think the other big one is the surge in the equity markets has fueled a sense of confidence, not only in the transition, but also has made many people feel wealthier and this real estate market and all real estate markets are often driven by how wealthy you feel. So from a global perspective, I think his impact on the real estate markets could be positive. Um, the bigger problem, I would say, is that the bonds, the government bonds are really plummeting. And that could have a dire effect on uh, commercial real estate valuations. And if mortgage rates go up, which they have already, they've spiked up, that will make things less affordable. But it could also bring down pricing in areas which could make it more affordable for others. The biggest fear I think everyone feels whether they're supporters or not, they feel that the potential for inflation is greater now than it's ever been by far. Let's talk a little bit about mortgage tax deduction. You recently wrote an article, The Future of the Mortgage Tax Deduction, and it was published, I think, last week. Many people are drawn to home ownership versus renting because of that interest deduction. And how exactly will Trump's new tax plan impact that? And what do you what do you, what do you think that's going to do to the, the market in general? Well, like a lot of things... Your article was very well written, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Like a lot of things with this new administration, we don't know the answer to a lot of questions. Just like every campaign, lots of promises are made. And then what promises can be delivered and how will they be modified in the real world? You know, every politician today has to say a lot of things to get elected. Mm -hmm. They have to appeal to a broad cross-section of people, many of whom don't even realize what they're voting for. And many of them who uh, you may not really like that much. <laughs> so I don't know the answer to that question and no one knows the answer to that question. But I do know for certain that if you take away that one incentive, it's the only major tax break for salaried people, especially in larger cities where real estate <clears throat> is so much more expensive. If you take away the mortgage uh, interest deduction, you will have a moment in this real estate industry that is going to be very, very scary. It will freeze. How it adapts, you know, we always adapt. If we break a leg, we learn to walk. But the first few weeks of having a broken leg are not easy. <laughs> 
No, they're not. You're right. But I think and, and I agree with you because, you know, most people, you know, who do currently rent rent because, you know, they feel comfortable doing so. When they smarten up and when they realize, all right, so if I buy something, regardless of the price point, I'm going to have a tax deduction because of my purchase. But if that goes away, you know, I really get concerned across the board and across the nation, you know, as to what really does happen with the real estate industry. I can't even imagine. Well, unfortunately, not everyone is as wealthy as we'd like them to be or we aspire to be. And I think everyone today, for the most part, who buys a home is going to look at the cost of the home and then break it down into how much are the real estate taxes, how much are the monthly mortgage payments, how much is the asking price. And if you add in today an additional cost in mortgage and take away the mortgage uh, 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 interest deduction, then you could have a really – you know, a, a two-prong attack on the housing market. And especially for first-time buyers. I mean, we all, you know, think about, you know, they, they scrape together, you know, for the most part, you know, life savings and they want to own a piece of the rock, especially here in New York City. And first-time buyers, you know, look at things like monthlies, look at things like real estate taxes, look at things like tax mortgage tax deductions. I mean, I can see that that would keep them completely out of the market. Uh, then add in the prospect of if... Uh, you start manufacturing a lot more product in the United States of America because of trade wars. That product for certain going to cost a lot more than what the U.S. consumer is paying for the product right now. So if you're paying more for everything you buy on a daily basis, mortgage rates go up and then you cannot get your mortgage interest Production, you could have a serious problem. So I'm certain the economic advisors who are in this next administration know that and will do the right thing. If they don't, they will be um, acting against the people who voted for them. We have a couple of minutes left in the segment. Tell us a little bit about Brexit and how you think it's affecting the marketplace here in New York City. Well, uh, today headlines came out already that the uh, wealth of London's wealthy has declined by over 15% already. That's one answer we have. But there are many other questions that we cannot answer immediately because we don't know the answer to the most important questions, and that is how is the rest of Europe going to address this Brexit? And already you can see some hardline positions coming along. And uh, I know from people that um, I know in London, there are two groups, one that's very fearful and leaving, and then there's another group who are coming in with a sharply reduced pound. The value of the pound has plummeted. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. only do they have a, a, a bigger buying power, but they also have a lot of people in uh, a lot of properties in London that are discounted and you can negotiate a lot harder. So you put those two aspects together and bet on the UK coming back over time and buying in London right now for a lot of investors is a focal point. What it does for the people, we don't know yet. What about other foreign investors uh, in this town these days? And we've gone through very robust, you know, foreign buyers, and then it slowed down a little bit, then they're back a little bit. Where are we today with, in general, foreign buyers investing here in New York City? There's definitely a solid pool of foreign buyers buying in Manhattan right now and in Brooklyn. There's no question about it. And everyone thought they disappeared. That is fallacy. But... These are people who often have money already in the United States of America and are not doing the conversion from their currencies, which are 
across the board devalued next to the dollar and that always impacts buying power but you would imagine or you'd hope that south america was at the bottom of their low and heading back up you would hope that with an increased oil price that a lot of economies that have been badly beaten up over the last few years would be coming back now and then the argument is still very solid that uh, New York is such a solid bastion of security for real estate and has recovered so exquisitely fast in the past, even after the worst and most horrific events, that in that lies a security blanket where people maybe look at parking money, not for the sake of making money, but for securing money. All right, we have to leave it there. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. The best part of being a real estate agent is in serving my clients, not just their transaction. This includes sometimes advising them not to sell if it'll improve their quality of life. Once a client decided to move out of New York City to get closer to family and they were inclined to sell, I convinced them to lease their home instead. They were shocked that I was willing to take a smaller commission for a smaller project, but after a couple of years, their home nearly doubled in value. I'm John Harrison with CORE, and this is what I do. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. We're talking to Leonard Steinberg president of Compass in New York City. I just wanted to close our thought from the last segment, um, you know, comparing the New York market to the global market. We touched on a lot of um, basis before, but the overall concern is that there is still concern. So give us a time frame that you think we can maybe level off and, and get back to normal, whatever normal is, but normal business or normal transactions here in Manhattan or in New York City. There's only one certainty about these markets going forward for the rest of time, in my opinion, and that's uncertainty. <laughs> and everyone had better get used to it. We are living in roller coaster times. We are living in a media and politicized world. And it's politicized. Something's got to give there. Something's really got to give One there. One would hope, but I don't think that's how you get ratings. And I think yeah. there are so many more media players fighting for the ad dollars and the attention that there's only one way to get the attention, and that's with a salacious headline. So mm -hmm. you will constantly have ulterior forces trying to motivate uh, a roller coaster. All right, let's move on. Tell us about new condo development today in this questionable marketplace. New development still seems to be booming. There seems to be a lot more um, buildings coming to market. And I know you and Perula are working at the Orchard. 
What are sales like there? And, and, and just in general, how is uh, the marketplace for new condo development? Well, 196 Orchard Street is a incredibly unusual proposition in that it has everything on the checklist. And I think for that reason, it is going to do very well. It's doing very well already. Mm-hmm. It's being incredibly well received. It's also a beneficiary of three neighborhoods, because it's Lower East Side, East Village, and yeah. Soho. But more importantly, I would say there are other buildings that are not as capable as, you know, being able to deliver on a checklist. And these days, the buyer has many more options. They look at their checklist, and there are only going to be a few properties at the top of that list that qualify for that checklist, and they will gravitate towards that. And they will probably be willing to pay a bit of a premium. You will have two sets of buyers. One that is going to focus exclusively on price, and the other one that's going to focus on quality. The ones that focus on quality will always be rewarded over the long term. Mm-hmm. Bargains in are bargains out. They mm-hmm. always have been, they always will Absolutely. be. It's like buying something on sale just because it was a great price and then coming home and it doesn't fit really well and you never wear it. It may have been cheaper, but if you're not wearing it, it's actually very expensive. It, absolutely it is. But overall, the market in um, new development, to answer your question more uh, specifically, overall, the market you have a tremendous volume of new construction. So everyone thinks that's roaring and wonderful. And it is. The unhealthy aspect of it is that there's probably more inventory than is needed. So the absorption rate will be slowed dramatically. The good news, though, is that the natural forces of markets, not politicians, not presidents, not governments, have impacted the um, lending practices already. And banks have pulled back all new construction financing unless the project is amazing and brilliant and they don't have unrealistic expectations pricing-wise. Now, let me ask you about that. So how how does one determine that it's amazing and it's terrific and it's probably going to appeal to the marketplace and it's going to sell and run off the shelf like nobody else has seen before? I mean, that's a tall order for a bank to kind of dictate, right? Well, the first thing I would say is if any developer came to me as a bank and said it's going to fly off the shelf, I'd throw them out <laughs> because that's unrealistic. Nothing's going to fly off the shelf right now. Everything's going to take time to sell. And by the way, that's called normal timing as opposed to the abnormal experience the last few years. And going to be areas where you might have some of abnormal. That may be because it's underpriced or because it's incredibly rare. But for the most part, the pace at which things sell are going to be much, much lower. But banks are going to have to look, and they are looking at details and specifics. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they're getting multiple opinions. So they aren't getting these politicized opinions that always are agenda-driven and sway the truth. Let's call it out loud. There have been past markets where so many lies were told to bankers and so many bankers were telling lies as well and we all paid the price. They're also looking for very established developers too. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult Mm -hmm. if you don't have an established track record to be approved as well. Absolutely. You know, I spent six years in new development condo sales and um, since I've been out of it, it seems to have changed dramatically. Let me ask you, um, last thought on that is, so how are the price per square foot uh, scenario being uh, accepted or, or pushed back by by consumers out there. Prices per square foot in a lot of um, these developments are high or higher than they've ever been, but yet we're still selling. But what is the overall opinion of the consumer out there where that sits right now? Well, I think there are some really bad aspects to price per square foot. And I find a lot of buyers are completely obsessed with price per square foot. It is just one data point that needs to be watched. Mm -hmm. The other data point to be watched is quality of square footage. Because you may be buying something for $3,000 a square foot that is worth more than 
a $2,500 per square foot mm-hmm. price. So price per square foot is one data point, and then the other one that drives everything at the end of the day is how much can I afford? It doesn't matter if it's $1,200 a square foot if I can't afford it. So the absolute price actually matters more, in my opinion, than dollars per square foot. But because everyone has become a real estate expert now, everyone talks price per square foot like they're bankers. They should stop being bankers and look at the quality of the product. The quality of the product and its affordability in the big picture is much more important. What are the real estate taxes? What are the common charges? What are the likelihood of assessments? Mm-hmm. What are the likelihood of the neighborhood going up or down? What kind of work has to be done to the building? There are so many fundamentals one needs to explore in a purchase and they have nothing to do with dollars per square foot. And even how the square footage is utilized. So just the way the floor plate might be, there might be a lot of wasted square footage. Mm-hmm. So even if you're buying it at a little bit of a less price per square foot, you're not utilizing the space the way you would if you're paying a little higher. In fact, a lot of times we see that in apartments, let's say it's a two-bedroom apartment that's 1,200 square feet versus 1,000 square feet. The 1,000 square foot apartment in the same building will be priced higher per square foot because that actually makes sense. You're still getting the utilization of a two bedroom. So paying a little extra per square foot where you're still getting two bedrooms makes sense versus maybe you're spending a lot more space in closets or hallways. And sometimes the closets are really nice, but do you really need those extra square feet in the hallways in the 1,200 square foot apartment? And to really take a look at those things, even whether it's, you know, whether it's an apartment that's a bread and butter apartment that is two bedrooms Mm -hmm. whether you're looking at a 4,000 square foot amazing sprawling home these are definitely indicators and and drivers to to pay attention to as far as square footage but as Leonard said before everybody gets fixated on the 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 square footage the size the price per square foot and it's so I mean even in my business on either new development or or resale Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same thing speaking of which let's let's look at the resale market so are we in a um, buyer's market I would say we're closer to a buyer's market than we have been in the last eight years. So if you're looking at the cycle since the recovery of 2008, I would say we're as close to a buyer's market as we can get. But real estate is hyper-localized. And what might be, that may be the case on one block, it might not be on the other, and might be in one part of a town and not the other part of the town. There are certain areas still where you walk in and there are multiple bids. So you've got to be very, very specific in real estate. You cannot be general and averages and, uh, you know, headlines that you read in the press are often historical and make no, they don't matter at all to the circumstances you're living in right now. In this almost buyer's market, um, as you put it, what, how, how, how difficult is it for us to get sellers to come on board with what pricing should be or what, as we call it, price to sell? Because I, I deal with a lot of sellers today that still are up in the sky with their prices. Well, you know, six months ago or a year ago or 18 months ago, my neighbor two floors up got X and so why can't I? Look, there's a fine line between hope and delusion. And sooner or later, <laughs> those who are deluded learn the That's hard way. That's going to be way. the title of my book, Hope and Delusion. Yeah. There you have it. All fine right. line, fine, fine line. line. You, as a seller today, you can be hopeful that the data points that are being presented to you are false. That's great hope, but it's delusion. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and it's a tough, it's a tough uh, uh, discussion you have with sellers all the time because you want to sell these properties for the maximum the market will bear. Mm-hmm. But if you try and beat the markets chances are you will fail mm-hmm. most of the time. 
Yeah, and it's a very fine line. And when you're having these very hard discussions with these clients, it's it's difficult. So you are a successful agent in this town, aside from being the president of Compass. But so what, in your opinion, or what in your, your business and, and that of your company is trending? What neighborhood is trending the most right now, the hottest? And we, we, we went from Lower East Side to East Village to, you know, Tribeca to whatever. There's always somebody up in the spotlight. Who's up there right now, in, including Brooklyn? I think the Lower East Side is experiencing a revolution right now. The volume of change that's happening there is spectacular. And most importantly, it is changing, yet it's retaining its authenticity. And of all the neighborhoods in Manhattan, the one war cry we hear from most New Yorkers is that you've stolen my old New York. And if there was one really cool neighborhood in Manhattan that's left, it's the Lower East Side. So for those who don't want to take the L train to Williamsburg, the Lower East Side is your only option. And if you walk into uh, most new buildings today, uh, new construction buildings, everyone's going to tell you about the upside to the neighborhood. And this is coming and that is coming and this is coming and that is coming. And you know it probably will be there within the next 25 years. In the Lower East Side, you can walk the streets and see it already Mm -hmm. because it's existing and a lot of it's protected. And from that perspective, I would say the Lower East Side is a neighborhood that exists already that's being enhanced as opposed to, you know, a a, a wasteland that's being built from scratch. All right, we've got about a minute left. So, um, Tell us about Compass. Your growth has been significant, and you are now in nine U.S. cities with 23 offices, and I think my math is right. Maybe I'm not. We're more than that already. Okay. <laughs> it just went up since we started the show. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask about global presence. Are you going to be going international at some point? I mean, you're all over this, uh, the, the U.S. at the moment. Yes. Look, we definitely have a global presence already, although we don't have offices globally, but our global reach is actually pretty astounding already. Um, yes, ultimately, we will be global. But I think most importantly right now, we are um, doubling down on servicing the regions that we're in right now, some of which are performing spectacularly. Um, San Francisco was opened just recently, and I'm blown away by not only the figures, but the quality of agents there. Remarkable. I do think the success of the company is uh, twofold. It is technology, but most importantly, it's technology that is fueling the best of brokers to be better, not replace them. And that means, unlike the jobs that went to Mexico or machines, (laughs) we are going to keep the industry intact. We're going to make the broker an important aspect in the daily lives of all consumers. And we will do so fueled by technology. The technology won't replace them. All right, Leonard's going to stick around for our next two segments. Thank you. So we have to go to break. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. 
whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and the panel has joined us. Leonard is going to stay with us. Leonard Steinberg, president of Compass, Matthew Cohen, core real estate, Peru Brombat, Compass, and Phil Horrigan from leasebreak.com. Good morning, and welcome, guys. Good morning. Morning. How was everybody doing today? Great. <laughs> Great. Great. Sorry, we were just talking about how cold it was. It's freezing. I say that at the top of the show. I can't get over it. But uh, It's actually 40 degrees higher than freezing. We have a long way to go. I know. Uh, <laughs> well, that's what I don't I know. You guys you know should what, try though, I have to say I'm grateful that it is almost end of November when we're finally complaining about cold. So. <laughs> Your optimism is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but what could happen is the same as last year. It was winter last year, of course, but it was a very mild winter. And, you know, I don't. I think I even had a heavy coat on for most of most of the three months last year, I think. I mean, I don't remember being freezing. It's the wind that's making it really cold. Well, I was just going to say, windy. the problem with New York is that it it, does, it has every type of weather. Instead of everywhere else, that just says one. We have rain, wind, and cold at the same time. Right, and I live not too far <laughs> from the Hudson. And there was the snow Hudson. in there, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Snowflakes yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. All right, let's move on. So for many New York buyers, so-called sponsor units are some of the most desirable options in the city, in part because buying directly from the building sponsor generally allows you to skip the typical interview process you have to go through to purchase, particularly in co-ops. Those sponsor units do have their downsides as well. But who is this mythical sponsor you're buying from and who will you be contending with on the board? So in other words, you have a co-op sale or you have a sponsor co-op sale. Really, what is the difference? For, for the listeners out there who don't understand our so, wonderful uh, world of co-ops. So sponsor units are two types of units. One is when there is a new development and um, sp- the sponsor is the developer and you are buying directly from the sponsor. The sponsor units that Vince is per- particularly talking about are a few units in a building that sold maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, where the sponsor, the developer, held back some units that were never actually sold back when the the rest of the sales were done in the building. When that happens, uh, there is a policy, especially in co-ops, which is quite lovely, uh, that anybody who's buying the unit is still considered as if they were buying directly from the developer and do not have to go through a board interview. Um, the reason why that Which is absolutely, is big. yeah, the reason why that is great <clears throat> is especially if you have a buyer or if you are a buyer uh, who maybe has, you know, is an entrepreneur or does not have the type of income or finances that would normally be something that a co-op board would look at. Um, this would actually allow you to purchase into that co-op without having the same, being able to meet the same restrictions that may 
gen- may potentially get you a board turndown. Also, you just don't have to jump through the hoop of actually going through the interview itself. One thing I'll add is that if you have an extremely qualified buyer, then this may be, unfortunately, you may pay a little bit more for the sponsor unit. So if you're working with a very qualified buyer. There is a little premium. There is a premium. So you just have to be careful. So sometimes, you know, a a buyer of mine would be very excited to go with a sponsor unit. But you want to make sure that it it works for them. Because if they're extremely qualified, it it may not work because they are going to be paying a premium for that. And maybe they don't need to do that. The nice thing about sponsor apartments is that they are usually renovated because usually the sponsor, before they put it on the market, they had a tenant in there that was either rent stabilized or they were there for a long time. And, you know, at the end of the day, when they had to sell it, they had to also renovate it, which is also nice and which is why you pay, pay that premium. But unfortunately, sometimes you look at the taste of some sponsors and you wish they <laughs> yes. hadn't touched it. I was you're reading my mind because I've walked into many sponsor like, renovations and said, oh, it's like the, in, in the suburbs, the builders, quality of whatever. Eek. Yeah, he's not building to make you happy. He's building to make a profit. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That's the only reason why. I mean, he doesn't care. He's not, he hasn't he been living care. there for five years. He doesn't you know? care. Uh, the, one, <clears throat> the only thing I wanted to point out, even though you can sell a buyer a sponsor unit in a co-op, the buyer might not be right or the right type of person to be living in a co-op. We have to understand, you know, co-ops run their own separate rules and they look for certain types of people. So even though they can get in, they can get past the board, they may not like living in a co-op because most of these people who are looking for either sponsor units or condos is generally because they can't really get past the board anyway. So, you know, you got to kind of vet your clients you know we all want to sell something to somebody but you got to vet your clients well and understand if they really belong in that particular building and to that point i think this depends on the building Mm -hmm. you guys could chime in here but sometimes when you buy in a sponsor if you buy a sponsor sale from a sponsor in a co-op you could rent it out when you want but sometimes when you buy i believe you have to follow the co-op rules which are often that there's some kind of limit on the number of times you could rent it out. I believe it depends on the building. It depends right? on the building, it's, but I think yeah. more importantly, um, once you buy a sponsor mm-hmm. unit, you have to abide by the rules of that co-op from then on. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's only the sponsor who had specific rules that didn't apply to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and generally, you know, you, you bypass the interview process because you're buying from the sponsor or whoever, and um, you don't have to deal with that aspect of getting in. So talking about that approval process, there is one thing that few New York City buyers actually can uh, comprehend, can't comprehend unless they have been through the process themselves already. It is also something that brokers take for granted. But let's face it, to an outsider, the co-op board application, approval process and interview process is time consuming, tedious, paper intensive, and frustrating. Fortunately for us brokers, we know it firsthand and we do it all day long, every day. Buyers, on the contrary, don't know what to expect. There are all sorts of tips and tricks to make the board package look great, have it completed faster and more efficiently, and less stress and anxiety for you, the broker, as well as the buyer and seller. Let's explain to the listening audience again out there who is not necessarily co-op sensitive or knowledgeable what this really means. I mean, you can't buy in a co-op without going through the, the now this is not a sponsor unit, this is a co-op sale without going, going through the process. I was going to say just buy the sponsor unit. <laughs> yeah, that's the easiest guess. No, I mean, at the end of the day, co-ops are much more intensive and, you know, require much more documentation and detail than a condo, which, which also affects a certain type of buyer because some people just like 
ultimate privacy and they don't want people going into their personal lives as much as a co-op will most likely um also having said that we've all laughed and cried about my most recent (laughs) board rejection for the first time (laughs) in my entire career and um i will say that i I think sometimes new york tries to be a little too forward thinking and recently you know some of the some of the best things some brokers think in the city are that a lot of these condo buildings lately have online applications and online board packages um and some co-ops lately have been doing it as well and i attribute some of that rejection to the fact that the co-ops board package was entirely online i I do think because of the detail of a co-op board package it should always be you know in front of you you know, touching it, it it should be a big package that you can sift through and put notes in if you need to, you know, I just think it, it's something that needs to say in the past with paper. I'm only going to plug that because it's a personal feeling of mine. Well, listen, I mean, you know, there are there are a variety of ways you can approach a board package. And, of course, you know, making it look slick and glamorous and bounded, binded or whatever, you know, if necessary, that's great. But we have to always keep in mind and never forget that the substance and the, and the, the content of that board package has to be exactly what the board or the buildings and the managing agents are looking for. You can try and get around that. And I recently had a, a buyer who was giving me all kinds of hell over this board package. Well, I'm not going to give you this, but maybe if I can give you that instead. And I'm like, no, it's required. This is what we need. Well, I don't have that. Well, you need to get it. Because if you're missing something in a package, it's incomplete and it does get rejected, not turned down, but it will be sent back to you as the agent to complete it. Well, I think one thing that uh, we as agents have a responsibility of doing is to remember that we are in the um, expectations management business. 100%. And you have to alert your buyers from the outset that yes, this co-op may be cheaper than all the condos, who by the way have also very tough application processes now. Yes, they do. That have gotten very carried away. And they have to understand that they're not only buying into a building with certain rules and policies, but they're buying into a building of personalities. And, you know, would Donald Trump pass a co-op board in Manhattan? Some yes, some no. Would he want to reveal his tax returns to them? <laughs> Probably not. So you've got to understand that certain I personalities you, should never buy in a co-op. And then you have people buying in a condominium who don't want to reveal their taxes either. And the condo requires it. So... I think the biggest one with um, co-ops is what's going to happen in Albany because I think certain co-ops and condominiums have gotten carried away Mm -hmm. and that has to be scaled back into is the person who's buying fiscally qualified and will they make a good and responsible neighbor? But then there are another 50 items on these checklists that seem to be getting a little carried away with constitutionality and rights. Based and on what Matt just said, he, he had a first board turned down in, in all the years that he's in this business. So what is the actual climate out there today in this kind of, you know, uh, flat marketplace? We're not really a buyer's market. We're still sort of in between. Where are we with the co-ops uh, and their thinking and their declining or approving? Well, what's the statistic here? Well, first, just to go off one other thing is that I, I think he brings up a really good point about the expectation <coughs> management, because one of the biggest things we have to tell buyers who are not from this area, we have to just educate them about the whole co-op versus condo thing, because most places in the country and the world, it's a house. And But having said that, one of my favorite things to do is educate 
people and buyers who are actually familiar with the co-op term, um, but they come from a co-op outside of New York, and I have to tell them how different they are, actually. Mm-hmm. Because but it's worse. It's the it, people who live in Manhattan as well who know the co-ops and don't realize that their co-op next door might be completely different. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's what's so important, because since there are two great brokers here from Compass, I will plug a deal I'm doing with a great Compass broker as well. They're all great. And <laughs> they, sorry, <laughs> sorry, they're all great. And um, so my buyer was actually, you know, he owns a co-op in Westchester and he was like, oh, I've done this before. It'll be a breeze. Mm. And and I said to him, <laughs> just like just, the attorney from the Catskills. <laughs> right. I said, just, you know, keep in mind, this is a Beekman co-op. So not only, you know, are you buying a co-op in Manhattan, it is quite intensive. And I, I want you to remember that. And when we, it took us three weeks to put it together because he had so many documents. And I was like, remember what I said before? And he goes, you were right. Thank you for managing my expectations. I usually go a step further. I say, you're going to probably hate me by the end of this process. Mm-hmm. And just kind of remind, and then I remind them, remember when I said you're going to hate me during that? You know. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I think that, and sometimes depending on who the client is, I will say the same thing. And what's really rewarding to me is at the end, after all the drama of the, the package and the submission and the interview, whatever, you do remain friends or friendly. And then you say, whoa, yeah. <laughs> I did my job well. And I warned you it's going to be difficult, buddy. We did and it. And you can laugh about it at a dinner party. Yes. And be like, how do you guys know each other? Oh, we had to put together a board package together. <laughs> Funding experience. My last my last comment on that is because I've mentioned this on the show before. When, you know, again, for the listeners out there, when you go through this process, it's like undressing yourself literally undressing yourself in front of the board because as Matt said earlier they get into everything they want to see everything they want to know everything and if you're a private person or someone who's hiding something you really can't get in front buy of a, a co-op condo. buy a condo that's what I but said but then what's really fun is the board package <laughs> is so intensive and then I have clients who have the interview and they go they barely ask me anything I don't understand what, what was so intensive about that alright we gotta leave it there we have to go to break this is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel don't go away The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com I've been a real estate broker for 14 years, and I really believe that success in any business happens one happy customer at a time. A client once told me, Maggie, you're going to be my broker for life. And I really take a lot of pride in that. When you exceed a customer's expectations, you know you've done a great job for them. You've gone above and beyond. They're going to give you repeat business. They're going to refer you to their family and friends. It means that they really, really trust you. I'm Maggie Kent with CORE, and this is what I do. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. You 
You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back for our fourth and final segment. I'm here with Matthew Cohen, Peru Brombat, uh, Phil Horgan, and Leonard Steinberg. So the October 2016 marketing reports from Manhattan reveal some fairly startling hints about the health of New York City real estate. For months, we've been hearing about the soaring capacity of luxury apartment buildings in New York City, and it looks as though that capacity influx is starting to take its toll as the percentage of rental inventory offering landlord concessions soar to 23.9% more than double the 10.4% recorded last October. So what is what is happening to the rental market? I was talking to somebody yesterday who works for a firm. I'm, I'm not going to tell say who it is, but they're very successful in renting out many, 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 many of their units and many, many, many of their buildings, and they are dead. It's almost stopped. And she said, we're not renting anything. Mayor Bloomberg said it perfectly. He said, if you want to make housing more affordable, build lots. That's the deal. <laughs> there's a lot of inventory mm-hmm. and it's a supply demand market. And when there's more supply than there's demand, pricing gets affected. Mm-hmm. It's the basics of economics. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there's just been a huge influx of um, rental property that is privately owned by a lot of investors. So I would think I'd say that since like about 2009, 2010, we really saw a large influx of foreign investors, but also domestic investors, um, especially on the higher end as well. And what we really see is that has, as Leonard said, you know, increased supply and there isn't as much demand at the time, especially at those price points. You also have a lot of naughty brokers who, when they're selling these apartments to their buyers, promise them all sorts of rental returns that are unrealistic. Amen. And the other big problem I feel is if you look at a lot of the new buildings that have, have been built as rental buildings, they're rental price aspirations are so crazy. Mm-hmm. Who can afford $6,000 a month for a one-bedroom? Mm-hmm. There are people who can afford it, but how many? But how many? Yeah. And then and, on more of a you know grounded level and to go off of the macroeconomic sense, you know, just bring it down to the basics of the fact that we are in an election year. I have to go back to this, but we are in an election year. Even though it is over, there's a lot of uncertainty in the future, especially as Trump is appointing his cabinet and, and appointing everyone in his group. Um, um, you know, there's all I hear from everyone is uncertainty, uncertainty. Yes, the market's great, the stock market. Um, you know, if you look at the Dow, they're almost at 19, which is insane. But at the same time, when everything is so uncertain in our near future, I think the automatic response that the world gives is I'm going to stick to my apartment. I'm not moving. I'm not switching jobs. I'm going to stick out my position, even if I don't like it. I'm not doing anything for the time being because that's the logical way of thinking in most worlds. So I think you also should bring it down to that in terms of the rental market and even the sale market. I think the sale market is actually doing better, but in terms of the rental market, it's more of a transient audience and people who just would rather stay in their apartment, especially since it's Thanksgiving. It's already the end of the year. Well, you ask if it's a buyer's or a seller's market, but it's actually more of a wait and see market. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, uh, I do think that a big effect is that people more... People are more willing to go to the other other boroughs. I mean, I'm seeing that on leasebreak.com. Like people, Absolutely. Where people would just look at Manhattan. Now it's Manhattan and Brooklyn. Or even Manhattan, Brooklyn and Queens. Westchester. Even mm-hmm. Westchester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this 
definitely makes a difference on the market when it and it just kind of has gradually happened over the last say five years or so where now your friends are living in these other places so when you come to new york you also hey let's look at brooklyn too well and, let's I, look at and earlier vince I mean, had asked the question well bed in crown heights is really exploding from a rental perspective yeah hey, you had asked earlier what's what's hot you know really i mean lower east side brooklyn and queens is mm-hmm. what's hot it really is. Long Island City. And let's get back to reality as well. What can people afford? That's the ultimate driving force of all markets. Yeah. You can have the most beautiful whatever, but if the price yeah. is unattainable, that's one thing. And the biggest one is what is the depth of the wealthy market? Because $6,000 a month for a one bedroom is incredibly expensive on any standards. Mm-hmm. And who can afford that? What? Income do they have to have to qualify for that? And what's interesting to me is, you know, in this last building cycle, um, there were so many large, huge apartments built. And I just don't think that that's forward thinking. Because if you look at Long Island or suburbs or whatever, nobody wants these 10,000 square foot monstrosity homes. These estates are sitting. People can't pay the taxes on them, even in the Hamptons. This is such a problematic thing that to create that in New York without looking at macro drivers is kind of insanity to well, me. Well, we were talking to somebody recently about some of the, the, the billionaire row, you know, buildings where they're, they're cutting down, cutting back some full floor residences because of they've been course. hanging out there on the market forever and making them smaller units and hopefully will sell, you know, faster. I don't know who saw the wisdom in building them so large, so many of them in the first place. To Leonard's point, how many people are spending well, them? How many billionaires really spend as much as we'd like them to, right? If you look at Warren Buffett and the way he lives, you go like, oops, that's one billionaire we wish would spend a little bit more, but he doesn't. And his house is shocking, actually. Shocking. Shocking. And we really, as a society in New York City real estate, need to harp on this word affordability. We really need to talk about the term more because at the end of the day, I have to give an example of a buyer that I had this past week and we're negotiating and the seller's broker says to me, if you come up ten thousand dollars more we have a deal and and it was getting very nitty-gritty and and i said to her we would if he could i mean when you put all the closing costs together at that point and you have his mortgage tax and you have you know it was a sponsor deal so you know at the end of the day when he's paying the sponsor fees and he's doing the you know transfer taxes he couldn't even come up that ten thousand but that is at every level that is at every level because i've heard people on the higher end than that say Mm -hmm. i've had a broker come back to me and say but it's only another million dollars right and it's and it's like it's not only Mm -hmm. this or only that it's also what people can afford no matter if you're spending a million or a ten million Right, exactly. I've heard that before too, Leonard. And you, you know, it's only a million dollars more. And I'm thinking, oh. do you have a million dollars in your pocket? Unbe- really, unbelievable to think that. Wow, that, that I mean, that's not a small amount of money. And a million dollars is a million dollars. But you know, the whole we we're not going to be able to get to it today. We're, we're going to run out of time soon. But we were going to talk about the closing cost and the aspect of that, where buyers don't think about that and their brokers or their attorneys don't point it out to them and I've sold a new development before and I've had people wanting to back out of deals way down the road because they realized almost close to closing what the closing costs are going to be like and I thought are you kidding me? Well, first of all, you can't get out of the deal. Where's your attorney? Where did, how? Why didn't your broker go through all this stuff with you? Because I always used to. And they were like, well, but that's a lot more money. I didn't even consider that. Well, consider it. It's, it's significant. 
right, moving on, we have one more topic before we probably end. Under the 421A tax abatement program for new development buildings, developers get tax breaks in exchange for creating a certain number of affordable units in their new buildings. For example, the so-called 80-20 buildings, they're already a standing requirement that 50% of those affordable units be set aside for current neighborhood residents. Even though the 421A tax abatement has expired, the program is still being fine-tuned. The New York Times reported this week that the mayor has quietly rolled out new requirements that developers the 421A uh, building set aside certain number of apartments for the homeless for homeless New Yorkers, a move that's been met with mixed reactions from the community. Now, my my thought is here, considering the flap with the poor door scenario last year, what is that going to create? Well, I'm confused. What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> we we had issues last year with mm-hmm. the eighty twenty buildings, the poor door, you know, going from a d- another entrance to the luxury side of the building, whatever. The mayor is asking us to continue doing this. So, how do we explain this to people? I think this is all. Well, homeless homeless is a little extreme, I would say. So every everything is outlook in this city and how something appears. And at the end of the day, I think sometimes these developers try and paint a picture for people, and they should really just be realistic and and honest. More not not realistic, completely honest. Because what happened in that poor door situation was that. Not to name the developer's name, but he was trying to paint a picture. And we in this city need to need to describe the middle income housing better because when you consider someone who's middle income to be around a hundred thousand, one hundred twenty-five thousand, that's not exactly. a good way to say lower middle income because exactly. people who are in the eighty percent of the building get worried that they're more. People who are like on food stamps and twenty to thirty thousand—that's mm-hmm. not the case. These are people that have great jobs and are the upper class in ninety percent of the country. So it's about how we paint that picture. We need to tell these eighty percent people and the world that they're great, you know, careered people. But it's also interesting in the most the wealthiest nation on the planet, Monaco, Tour Odeon. Has a rich door and a poor door in their building. That's the that's the bastion of um, capitalism, <laughs> and they have a rich door. Poor I think the bigger problem I have is that our constitution says we're all created. Uh, we're supposed to be treated fairly and equally. And what is so fair and equal about applying this rule to the new buildings and not saying, well, what? why not retrofit all the old buildings too? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of the lawmakers who are imposing this on buildings, I don't know. I think there's a double standard uh, that really needs to be questioned here because the fair and equalness of our real estate tax system, the fair and equalness of 421A is a big mess. It's a complete and total mess. I don't know how it gets resolved. I don't know how it gets fixed. We'll leave it to you. Well, yes. <laughs> bring it back. Actually, I mean, and on a completely separate topic, to me, it's just that the property tax, I mean, very few people know this, but it is a pro- the property taxes of a specific school district that fuel how the school district is funded. Well, and that is why we have so many education problems, which is a whole separate topic. Well, the other thing with 421A <clears throat> abatements, just quickly, when it comes to apartments, is it's a big con act as well, because people buy into this abatement in the first two years, the taxes are really low and by the time the abatement expires 10 years later those taxes are significantly higher than its next door neighbors so let's look at the 421a abatement a little closer because there are a lot of corrupt elements to it 
there are a lot of corrupt elements to it, and it's being looked at as we speak. And let's let's hope that it gets fixed. Um, I want to say thank you to um, Leonard Steinberg for being with us today, President of Compass. Always a pleasure to see you. Come back again. Thank you so much, Matt Cohen, Peru Brombat, Phil Hargan. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. You can catch the show anytime on podcast or on our website, VoiceAmerica.com, or at VinceRocco.com. For all of us at Voice America, all around the world. Thanks, and see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.